Hello and welcome to Similar Minds, a podcast where we discuss how studying animal psychology helps us better understand the human brain. My name is Stephen New, and in this episode, we will be discussing a recent study published on a topic that many of you probably haven't thought about before. How do hallucinations work in mice, and how can we translate that knowledge to humans? To better understand this study, I spoke with Veronica Ledoux, a high school teacher at Catlin Gable that teaches neuroscience. Uh, Can you introduce yourself a little bit? Absolutely. I am Veronica Ledoux. I'm a high school science teacher, and I, right now, I'm teaching a neurobiology elective, which maybe is why you're talking to me. Now, Veronica had been the one to introduce me to this study, and so I was curious, where had she found it? Yeah, this just came out on April 2nd, and I thought it was a joke for April Fools and was totally amazed that it's not. The article is published in Science Magazine. It is called Striatal Dopamine Mediates Hallucination-Like Perception in Mice. And the idea of studying something as ineffable as hallucinations in an animal like a mouse was really surprising to me. And then it was cool to kind of dig into the details and see how the scientists did it. And uh, to start off, what was the study? I mean, I know the study is focused on hallucination-like perceptions in mice, but how? what was the setup for hallucinations in that experiment? Excellent. Yes. So the researchers are interested in studying hallucinations because they are a component of psychotic symptoms in humans. The researchers say that they know that dopamine has some role in hallucinations, but it is not well understood. The role of dopamine in movement, the role of dopamine in um, dependence and reward is much more specifically understood. And here they wanted to understand the role of dopamine and hallucinations. So the researchers created a paradigm to induce something similar to a hallucination in both people and in mice. And they make a point that the a hallucination is the perception of something that really feels real and true to a person, even though there is no sensory stimulus there to back it up. So in this instance, they are playing a fuzzy background staticky noise, and then they're occasionally playing a tone hidden in the noise. And you need to listen and distinguish when you hear the tone and sort of distinguish that from the, the, the background sound. So you're trying really, really hard to hear the tone, and you may sometimes report that there is a tone when it's just background. So that's the, the paradigm that they're using. They're trying to create an auditory hallucination. And you mentioned that it's for both humans and mice, so how do they uh, determine whether the hallucination like perception actually happened in humans? Great. In humans, it is really easy. They ask people whether or not the person heard the the tone. And they also ask for a level of confidence. So they're having people do this online. You check the box if you heard the tone or you think you heard the tone. And then they give you a little slider to move farther along, depending on how confident you are that you heard the tone. So they're collecting... um, 
data about whether or not you heard it and how, how confident you feel about whether or not you heard it in people. And that sounds like it'd be difficult to replicate in mice. How do they accomplish that? They do accomplish it. So in mice, they have the same kind of paradigm of they have fuzzy background sound with a tone hidden in it. And you have to listen for whether you hear the tone or not. In mice, they are having mice vote, if you will, of whether they heard the, ta- the tone by going over to a little board that has two holes in it. And there's a hole for, yes, I heard the tone, and there's a hole for, no, I did not hear the tone. And the mouse has to poke its cute little nose through one of those holes. If it picks the appropriate hole, it gets a yummy treat. So if the mouse hears the tone and then goes to the, yes, I heard the tone hole and pokes its head through, it gets a snack. If it does not hear the tone and it goes over to the, no, I did not hear the tone hole, then it also gets a snack. So they're able to know from that they have to train the mice to do this and then once they're trained they can run the test with the tones so they have to um, find out whether or not the mouse heard the tone and they also measure the duration of time that the mouse is willing to wait with its head poked through the hole waiting for the snack the idea being that the more confident the mouse is that it really heard the tone, the more it deserves the snack and the longer it's willing to wait for the snack to be delivered. If the mouse is not very sure if there was a tone, then it'll poke its head through, but it won't wait around for the snack because it knows that, oh, probably there just wasn't a sound after all because it was hard to tell. So they're measuring which hole the mouse pokes its head through to find out yes or no if the mouse thinks it heard a sound. And they're also measuring how long the mouse waits to get a sense of the mouse's um, confidence in the, um, whether there was a sound or not. Yeah, and at the beginning of the study, I know in the title, it mentioned that this was about dopamine and its relation to hallucination-like perception. So how does dopamine factor into this hallucination experiment? So in the, in the people, the researchers did not directly study dopamine. In the mice, they did. They did a test to see how dopamine release in a particular part of the brain called the striatum correlated with these high confidence hallucination-like perceptions in the mice. And they did this by adding a gene to the mice that would allow the dopaminergic cells to produce this green fluorescent protein. And that would help the researchers sense the release of dopamine when the um, researchers measured this green fluorescence. So they're putting a fiber optic line, a, a cable into the mouse's brain, into the specific spot, And then they're measuring, while the mouse is doing the behavioral task, listening to the sound, they're measuring the fluorescence change in that part of the brain to have an indication of dopamine release. What they find is that dopamine is released immediately before the mouse votes that it has a high confidence in a hallucination-like perception. So the, they're, they're finding this positive correlation between dopamine release and the mouse experiencing a hallucination. And, but that isn't all of the story because correlations aren't 
necessarily implying that these are linked together. One of them, it, it might be a coincidence that these are happening at the same time. So how did they show that there really is this connection between these two, you know, maybe possibly unrelated events? Excellent point. So just because these um, dopamine release and the um, behavioral indication of a hallucination in the mouse happen to coincide, we don't know yet that there's any causative link. So the next thing the researchers do is they take another mouse, a different kind of mouse line that has been genetically modified. These are expressing a protein in their dopaminergic cells that is sensitive to light. And this protein will take a light stimulus and cause the cell to be electrically active. So it'll change the light stimulus into an electrical stimulus. And this allows the researchers to insert a fiber optic cable into the mouse's brain, a very, very tiny little cable, and to shine a light into the brain and then activate the dopaminergic cells. So the researchers are able to specifically turn on, if you will, the dopaminergic cells. And they see that when they do that, that causes, that leads to the mouse reporting hallucination via this auditory paradigm. So this allows the researchers to manipulate the activity of the dopamine cells and then see what the behavioral result is of the mouse after they do that. So um, why don't we just zap these brain particles with electricity or current and stimulate them that way? Why do we need to go through the trouble of using light to turn, turn that into electric signals and then stimulate the brain? Excellent point. So you are totally right that inserting an electrode and injecting current is a time-honored approach to studying the brain. And the benefit of that is we're trying to make these electrical cells, these neurons, be active. And the most direct way to do that is by just injecting electricity. The disadvantage of that is that I can trigger non-specific cell activation if I just inject electricity. And here, if I want dopamine cells particularly to be activated, but I don't want the immediate neighbors of those dopaminergic cells to be activated, if I don't want the other neurons in that neighborhood to be also activated, then I need to stimulate somehow only the dopamine neurons. Uh, and to clarify when you mean non-specific activation of these neurons, you mean activation of neurons other than the ones that you specifically want, right? Yes. So these researchers are trying to make a point that it's the dopamine producing neurons in the striatum that are responsible for this hallucination-like behavior. And they are trying to then isolate the activity of just those dopaminergic neurons. So they've taken this protein called rhodopsin that comes from the photoreceptors in the eye. So if you think about it, your eyes have to convert a light signal into an electrical signal that gets sent to your brain. And they do that because you have a protein that can sense a photon of light and then transduce that signal into an electrical signal that then causes the neuron to respond. So researchers have sort of opportunistically taken that rhodopsin protein and now are able to genetically 
manipulate a cell or an entire organism to have the gene for the rhodopsin protein and then be able to express the protein. So if the cell can build the rhodopsin protein, then it can be controlled. The electrical activity of that cell can be controlled with light. And this is done in a whole bunch of different applications. This is a sort of um, a common trick. Um, we've actually done optogenetic experiments in neurobiology, though not during the pandemic year. Um, and the the benefit is we can have a we can use a specific wavelength of light to very very specifically activate only certain cells and that then leads these researchers to be able to say more directly that it's the dopamine producing neurons specifically that are being activated not just generic neurons in that neighborhood and Maybe the converse is, the opposing point of view, if you wanted to argue against this, is that there's a massive genetic manipulation that's happened here. So the, you know, you've, you've taken the sort of generic mouse that you started with and you've made a pretty significant change and that has to be factored into your overall sort of um, what you conclude from the results of this experiment. And how do they know that this this cha this result, this change, uh, or these hallucination-like perceptions are caused by specifically stimulating the dopamine with the light instead of some other genetic change uh, from these uh, from these changes to the the mouse's genome, as you you know mentioned, was the opposing point of view. Nice point. So uh, one extra set of experiments that these researchers do is they they stimulate the dopamine producing neurons with light in the presence of haloperdiol, which is a potent antipsychotic drug that's used in humans to control hallucinations among other psychotic symptoms. And the haloperdiol works by blocking um, these dopamine neurons. So they add the drug to block dopaminergic activity they stimulate the dopamine-producing neurons with light to turn them on. So they try to turn them on in the presence of the drug, so they can't turn them on when the drug is there. And then they see that the increased tendency towards behavioral manifestation of hallucinations is negated in the presence of this dopamine-blocking drug. So that helps you know that the increase in hallucinations when those cells are stimulated with light is a product of extra dopamine activity, not just some other funny thing that happened. And they also test, at least behaviorally, they test it for hallucinations, not just from sound, but also in other cases in mice. Um, I know that you mentioned like they use certain drugs to stimulate the mice and see and use the same behavioral um, system to test whether or not they have hallucinations. Yes, um, there's a drug called ketamine that causes psychotic symptoms in people. They give the mice ketamine and the idea being that they are causing the mice to be more susceptible to hallucinations in the presence of ketamine. And then they run the behavioral test and they find the mice report more hallucinations in the presence of ketamine. And they also, back in people, 
So they're trying, to, they have much more control and they can do many more invasive experiments with the mice, but ultimately they're trying to relate this back to people. And in people, they ask people a series of questions and have people self-report how often they notice things in their environment that turn out to not really be there, how, how, um, how easy it is to be fooled by those things, how, um, how distressed they are by those instances. So they sort of get people to report the level of hallucinations they have in their day-to-day -day life. And they see that they have a range of, um, of extremes there. They have uh, 200 maybe some people, I forget exactly. And they also then correlate that with how likely people are to have accidentally heard a noise that wasn't really there during the auditory test. And they see that they have some people who are very likely to report a noise that was not actually played. So some people are more susceptible to these auditory hallucinations. They're trying really hear hard to hear the sound and they think they hear it even when it wasn't played and they will report with high confidence that it was played even though it wasn't. So the people who have a high um, susceptibility to these auditory hallucinations also have um, self-reported a um, high level of hallucinations in their day-to-day -day life. So that helps the researchers feel like this is a, um, a good model and helps sort of corroborate the effectiveness of this paradigm that they're using with the mice. And I know that there are a lot of you know, wacky experiments out there with mice and with humans, um, and uh, all sorts of different in all sorts of different fields, uh, not just neuroscience as well. But um, how did this one stand out among all those experiments with mice and with um, testing? You know, very like weird things. Um, you know, that might you know be as weird as hallucinations or stuff like that. You are right. When I first saw the title of this one, I thought it was going to be pretty high on the, the wacky list because mice and hallucinations seemed like a strange combination. However, I think the combination of having done a very similar behavioral test in people and in mice is a particularly um, strong thing that it has going for it. A lot of papers will test a, a behavioral paradigm in mice and then try to do some hand-waving around its relation to people, but here they've actually done the same test in people and in mice, and that is particularly strong. And then they've gone a step farther in the mice, and they have studied what is happening with the mouse's normally behaving dopaminergic cells, and they've manipulated those cells um, with this optogenetic paradigm, and then they've seen what happens when they block that manipulation. So the, the combination of the sort of the trio of three ways that they study the mouse's dopaminergic system in combination with the hallucination paradigm is, I think, particularly strong. So I thought, I think that that taken together, all of those are good reasons that this is a particularly robust um, set of experiments. And, you know, outside of this very specific case of hearing sounds or hearing things that aren't there, what broader applications might this study have for studying hallucinations or dopamine in the brain? 
Well, that's a good question. I would say that building off of what we just discussed in your last query, that this is a nice model for behavioral researchers to see, um, to sort of set a standard for what a robust set of experiments in a behavioral field could look like. And that it is, it is unsurprising that they have found, the researchers have come up with this particular um, causative link between dopamine and increased tendency towards hallucinations. However, it is an important demonstration of something that people thought was um, linked and didn't have as robust evidence for. So this is a good confirmation of something that likely seemed to be the case, but we did not have robust evidence for. So that is helpful to have. And now you could imagine a whole jumble of different ways that scientists could tweak the, the behavioral paradigm or, or could try to kind of dial up or down the, um, the hallucinatory activity and, and then try to modify things to be able to test in the mice, now that this sort of mice as an experimental model here in this case has been established to, uh, to test antipsychotic drugs or other therapies that then you could apply to people. All right. Well, thank you for talking about this study with me. Yeah. You're welcome. It's been fun. Thanks once again to Veronica Ledoux for agreeing to talk with me, as well as the Soundtrap Loops Library for providing the piano music used in the intro and outro. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.